Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, my name is Alexander Smatrov and I'm a practice lead uh, for Russia, Central and Eastern Europe and Eurasia here at Global Council. And today uh, with me is Nico Popescu, who is the director of Wider Europe Programme and senior policy fellow of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And we are going to talk about the EU-Russia relations and various aspects of those which could be interesting for businesses in the next uh, EU political cycle. So, Nico, I would like to start from uh, asking you about the kind of uh, the general assessment of the state where the EU-Russian relations are at the moment and what, uh, what is the kind of the, 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 the key points of those from the last uh, five years when the relations uh, deteriorated. I think we are now in a somewhat quieter moment than at any moment since the Russian annexation of Crimea and, you know, destabilization of Donbass. So now it's a kind, it looks like a certain moment of calm. A lot of the political dialogue, you know, it's not so much frozen, but it's very narrowly focused on security issues around Ukraine. So the agenda is much less positive than it was 10 years ago. Um, and But besides this kind of not great political mood, there is quite a lot of trade going on. I, the last two years were actually absolutely record years for Russian gas exports to Europe. Russia never exported as much gas uh, to Europe as in the last, uh, in 2017 and 18. So there is a lot of trade happening despite sanctions um, and, and despite the frosty political relation, relationship. Uh, having said that, for now it looks like, you know, EU policy on Russia, Russian policy on the EU and Ukraine have all, are all arriving to a kind of end of cycle regime. So we'll see what the next cycle is about. Um, and there are some tensions not very far from the surface, which could blow up or, or maybe not, but it's Kerch Strait type of incidents. It's cyber incidents as happened uh, last year with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. So I wouldn't say that it's complete calm and there are some risks here and there. But for now, it looks like uh, the situation is reasonably uh, quiet in the sense that it's not in active crisis mode. Right. And so far, we have seen that uh, the EU has managed to maintain a unity uh, on many issues, including political relationship, various engagements and sanctions. Um, but it was a completely different case in Russia itself, which has normally uh, treated the EU as a combination of 28 uh, different relationships rather than one single Moscow-Brussels uh, relationship. And I just wanted to ask if you uh, see it this way as well, and what uh, might uh, might change uh, in, in the nearest future from this point of view. It's absolutely true that Russia definitely prefers to have bilateral relations with EU member states. When possible, it likes and tries to divide member states for a very simple reason, uh, that it's easier to deal with small or medium-sized countries, which gives Russia asymmetric power and asymmetric weight. And it's easier to, you know, to get some concessions out of Portugal or Croatia or even France taken separately than from the entire EU. 
uh, it's definitely playing that game diplomatically, economically. This game did not work on sanctions. It somewhat works on energy with the launch of Nord Stream into Germany, uh, but but on the sanctions EU policy of EU sanctions on Russia, this approach did not work. Now you get a new round of, if you want, upgrading of Russian attempts to divide the EU and Russia. If 10 years ago Russia mostly tried to divide member states, you know, playing contradictions between Polish approaches and Greek approaches to Russia. Now Russia does quite a lot of domestic party politics. So it's not even so much dividing member states, but political parties. So, you know, Vladimir Putin having uh, pictures with Marine Le Pen a couple of weeks before the presidential in France is the type of um, party politics exposure that Russia has been increasingly doing. Uh, you know, Russia today has been lending a, a helping hand to various political forces across Europe, be it in Scotland during the referendum or in Catalonia during the independence referendum in Catalonia. So you get a lot of that happening now. Uh, it's not having a great impact on policy, but it, it certainly does divide the European de debate and conversation on Russia. And if we uh, look at the results of the recent European Parliament elections, we would see that um, populists in many uh, countries, including France, Italy, uh, Hungary, and so on, um, the, the results were quite impressive. And most of those uh, leaders, uh, they are kind of Russia-friendly or Russia-leaning in some regard. And some of them are in government, like uh, Matteo Salvini in Italy or Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary. Do you think uh, there will be another attempt to try to test the European unity on sanctions? And what, has, uh, what might prevent uh, them from doing so? A lot of European political forces, some of them in power, some of them not, see Russia with friendly eyes, would not like to see a strong Europe on foreign policy. But actually, very few, for very few of them, Russia is, is a very important uh, subject. So Orban has been in power for ages. At some point, Orban even publicly stated that he thinks the EU, policy, EU sanctions policy on Russia don't make sense. But he's not going to veto it because he has other things to discuss in Brussels and Berlin. So he, he doesn't have an interest to pick up fights with Germany and other EU European, European member states for the sake of Russia. The same has been the policy of Salvini so far. Uh, yes, they do try to engage with Russia bilaterally, but for them still Russia is not of such an import, is not important enough for them to pick up fights with the rest of the EU. Having said that, there are a lot of member states that would like to see a certain dilution of the sanctions policies on Russia, but Russia is not making it easy by keeping up pressure on Ukraine, not implementing Minsk, doing passportization in Donbass, you know, playing a role in the Kerch Strait incident uh, late last year and capturing uh, the Ukrainian sailors and not releasing them. Uh, so. For now, it looks like the EU sanctions edifice on Russia remains reasonably strong, partly because those who don't like this policy are not willing to uh, launch a major diplomatic campaign to remove it. Yeah, this, uh, this makes perfect sense. And yeah, let's see uh, what happens at the next uh, rollover of the European sanctions in June. 
But before we finish, I would like uh, to ask you, you already touched upon this a little bit uh, on Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we now have the new president uh, in place and uh, a lot of eyes uh, are on him, both in Ukraine, in Europe and Russia and elsewhere. So what do you think uh, his kind of uh, immediate and medium term uh, steps will be in, uh, in kind of in relation to, to Russia? And how, what, what, what role can Ukraine play in kind of uh, uh, EU-Russia relations and the next phase of those? We just had a couple of days ago at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a public event of, with one of Zelensky's advisors. And one of the things he said is that first of all, Zelensky has a team of people, but he doesn't have yet a political team. So it's very likely that we'll see a lot of personal changes, uh, personnel changes around Zelensky in the next one, two years. Uh, a bit like with Donald Trump, until Zelensky finds his modus operandi and the people he trusts and he mm -hmm. delivers on his instincts on foreign policy and domestic policies, including Donbass. So whatever anyone is telling you about Zelensky today may not be true in six months. Uh, having said that, for now, the conversation around Zelensky regarding Donbass is the following. He would want and considers way to reopen and relax domestically the pressures that the Ukrainian state kept on people in Donbass. So he's into engagement, he's into unblocking and unclogging people-to-people -people circulation between Ukraine proper and the conflict zones. Uh, he's into kind of trying to, you know, pay more pensions, opening more checkpoints and crossing points into the rest of Ukraine. So he wants to make Ukraine be more open to those people from the separatist republics of Lugansk and Donetsk who want to cross into Ukraine either for good or just, you know, for their back and forth um, circulation. Uh, he wants to change the message on these people, uh, on the people living in these separatist regions. But, so in this sense, he would want, he wants a U-turn from what the Poroshenko approach to Donbass domestically was. However, the international and the foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Donbass is for now going to be very much in vain and along the lines of what was happening until now. Meaning that Ukraine will continue asking the European Union and the US to keep the sanctions pressure on Russia as the only lever that could kind of nudge Russia towards continuing uh, some kind of peace around Donbass and hopefully towards uh, a restabilization of the region. So for now, the message from Kiev is that Ukrainian foreign policy approaches and endeavors around Donbass are not going to change very much. But what they will try to change is the domestic approach to the residents uh, who live in the separatist zones. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Nico, for your insights on EU, Russia and Ukraine policies. And obviously, this is a very interesting area to follow and we are going to continue following this. Thank Thanks. you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.